Welcome back to Two Jane Knows. So, another shout out to Malin Petrie and Vanshell Rollins. You guys voted, and we saw both of you. So, this week we're going to be talking about the film The Strangers. And basically, the story is as such. Kristen and James attend a wedding and are expecting to relax at a family vacation home, but their stay turns out to be anything but relaxing. It includes a mysterious woman randomly appearing at their door asking if Tamara lives there. Hint, hint, she doesn't live there. And a friend is being mistaken for an intruder and accidentally gets shot. And then the real fun shows up in the form of three masked lunatics who torture Kristen and James, leaving them struggling for survival. So, Kayla, have you ever rejected your boyfriend's marriage proposal, watched him accidentally kill his best friend, and then somehow managed to survive a home invasion all on the same night? Let's talk about it. This podcast contains some adult language, graphic descriptions of crime scenes, sexual assault, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. So this terrifying home invasion horror film was sadly inspired by real life violent crimes that included some brutal murders. A lot of the horror films that you see today are associated with tales of monsters, ghosts, and other supernatural creatures. However, some of the most effective horror films rely on none of those things. Uh-uh. Not them little spooky spooky hocus pocus type of movies. Knocks in the night types of movies. It's easier to not be afraid of Freddy Krueger, Jason, Michael Myers, Pennywise, all because they aren't real and they can't hurt us. Nope. I mean, unless you have some weird twisted reality and you're like doing some LSD and tripping on some shit, maybe it's real for you. God, that sounds terrible. But that's where the movies like The Strangers come in. The Strangers is particularly terrifying because it could happen to anyone. Anybody. And because the world is full of murderous psychopaths that are all too skilled at hiding in plain sight, while it's not something that happens every day, there's still a non-zero chance that any one person could be murdered by someone they've never even met. Non-zero chances, y'all. Non-zero chances. So, writer and director Brian Bertino stated that the movie was primarily based on three different events. The first is the infamous series of murders committed by the Manson family in 1969, which, precursor here, we're not going to be giving Manson or his family their own episode either. They're played out. They're overdone. Moving on. More specifically with them, though, 
the home invasion of and the home invasion and killing of Stephen Parent, J.C. Ring, Wojciech Rakowski, Abigail Folger, and Sharon Tate. So that's the event we're going to be focusing on for this movie. The second is another quite infamous murder, the, which is the 1981 Keddie Cabin murders, in which Glenna, Tina, and John Sharp, as well as his friend Dana Wingate, were murdered dead. The third bit of real inspiration comes from Bertino's own life. He recalled a night when his parents weren't home and someone knocked on their door asking for someone who didn't live there. Bertino says he later learned that the people were knocking, the people knocking or robbing houses in the neighborhood where no one was home instead of attacking people who were. This experience will leave a mark that would later serve him well as a screenwriter. So have you ever had your house broken into? Like whether you were there or not? Yeah, I think uh, my parents had a family friend and, you know, she climbed in a window and stole checks. See, we had family come and steal stuff from us, but it's never been like just some yeah. strange person like, do do do, hello. Yeah, no, I was Bobby home. <laughs> yeah. No, I haven't experienced anything like that. Like, thank God. I mean, me personally, I've had my car broken into. That was great. Oh, yeah. That was nice, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, they took my, uh, it's my fault, if we're being honest. Should have just left the door unlocked. Been cheaper. Um, left my wallet in the middle console of my vehicle, and they busted my window out. And once I got back and realized what had happened, all cards were canceled. I don't carry cash. So they just made it off with an empty wallet. Whereas I had to put up with the frustration of getting a new driver's license, getting new cards, and also <laughs> pay $200 to get a new window put in my car, which was not even a year old at that point. It was great. Yeah. Yeah. They went through a lot of effort just to get that. I would recommend for anybody who wants to be irrationally mad do that and then I got mad because we couldn't go get uh, food like we wanted because we didn't want the car to be left over the window open not that there was anything left for them to take but yeah didn't want to risk it we went home and I was very salty <sighs> shit like that happens yeah so Kayla what did you think of the strangers I didn't really watch The Strangers recently. It's been a while since I've watched The Strangers, but I will say that <clears throat> I do enjoy this movie a lot better than the last movie that we talked about just because people fucking die. Oh my gosh. People They're... die. It gets super suspenseful. I mean, there's people being tortured. There's okay. people being okay. killed dead. So Girl. it was a lot. It's a lot better. <laughs> killed dead. Okay, time out. Number one, <clears throat> don't come for the Silence of the Lambs. Vanshell, in particular, was very upset with that comment. She thinks it's a great film, as do I. Now, secondly, spoiler alert, because we're about to give you the deets on this movie, but it was made in like, well, a remake was made in like 2008, and then I think there was like a 2018 mm -hmm. uh, adaptation of the film. Yeah. I watched the 2008 with Liv Tyler. That is my personal go to that's the one that I remember watching in the past so that's what I looked at this time and I can't say that I'm any more responsible than you are I just watched it today as we were recording this while I should probably be working 
but I had it playing in the background. If the moment got tense, I looked up, watched it, whatever. Now, with that being said, there's like a total of like maybe, what, one, two, three, six people in the movie. I think roughly yeah. six to seven mm -hmm. people in the movie. And the movie features Kristen and James. Well, she calls them Jamie a lot in the movie. And basically it starts out. You could tell there's some not so great feelings going on between them when the movie starts. They're not really talking to each other. You hear Jamie say stuff like, this night didn't go as I planned. He calls his friend to come pick him up because it's a whole awkward ordeal. Um, they make it back to this vacation home after going to a wedding. And, you know, she's trying to deal with everything that's going on. And his ego is totally deflated. Uh, so that's when you find out that he did try to propose to her. She tells him no, that she's not ready. And then that's when the real fun starts, you know. And here's where it gets me. I understand that sometimes you're not ready to get married and take that next step in a relationship. But they make it seem in the movie like they're going to be splitting up or at least taking a break, taking some time apart. Well, they start getting hot and heavy. You see them take her panties off. And, it, you know, they're getting her getting into sex before they're really interrupted by this strange young blonde woman asking if Tamara lives there. This is maybe all of about 15 minutes into the movie at this point. Exactly. Quick, you get to the point, you start doing Girl, stuff. Girl, it ain't even started yet. Anyways, 15 minutes into the movie, this mysterious woman appears and then you know their sex was interrupted or the beginning of was interrupted she says i'm out of cigarettes he goes off and then some more weird things start unfolding she gets changed out of this ridiculously hideous dress but it was 2008 she gets changed and she's smoking like what i would imagine is the last cigarette she had and that's when this girl comes back and she's asking if Tamara lived there again. She says, no, you've already been here. And she's like, I don't think so. And then there's lots of beating and banging going on around the house and the drama, the drama. And there's one particular scene where she's standing, which is actually the cover for the movie and the one that we've put on our Instagram and Facebook where she, Liv Tyler is standing facing us and there's a dark doorway and you see this masked figure in the back. That scene right there gave me shivers because he was already in the house and she had no idea. And just as these types of movies do, it just progressively gets worse. Yes, worse and worse and then people start dying. That's the it best part. It gets worse. Like they start terrorizing her and then her... I don't know what you'd call him. Her Jamie <laughs> comes back and, you know, she's trying to explain to him what, what she's been dealing with, what's going on. And I got mad. One of my mental notes was he treated her like she was crazy when she tried to tell him that there was somebody in the house. He's like, there's nobody here, Kristen. Like, don't do that. She was all shook up. Her hand was bleeding. Somebody was there. And then enter Mike, which is 
played by a guy that uh, does a character in It's Always Sunny, and I can't think of his name off the top of my head. Y'all can make fun of me later, but I can't remember his name. <laughs> He's the character that's real full of himself. Anywho, he's from It's Always Sunny. I thought it was funny because I don't think I've ever seen him in anything else other than It's Always Sunny. But he plays Jamie's best friend and he comes in and he's like seeing the total disarray of the house. <laughs> and he walks in the house and they're playing Mama Try on a retro player. <laughs> and freaking Jamie just comes out with a shotgun, blows this dude's face off pretty much. And then he was like, oh shit. He wasn't wearing a mask. But the point is that someone died relatively quickly. That was about a half hour into the movie. I'll give you that. Yes. It's about half. But that's the only... There's only two deaths in the movie. Right. And, you know... So then after that, as I said, for things get... I won't bore you with all the details, but I mean, things get progressively worse. And, you know, then they're both just being terrorized and... You know, they're struggling to survive, trying to fight these, fight back against these people. It's not working. And then the end scene is you, they peel back the curtains. It's daylight outside now. They've been there all night, just scaring the living shit out of these people. They're tied to chairs, and you see Jamie being stabbed by at least two of them. And then the movie kind of circles back and it starts, it ends where it started. And it's two little boys being good little disciples and out there handing out Christian pamphlets. And that's when they notice the murder scene. Um, but this time you hear Liv Tyler just scream at the end and then the credits roll. Um, all in all, good suspenseful movie. And that is the scariest thing is there are people out there that would do that. I could see that being a very real, a very real thing. Oh yeah. I think I more vividly remember the 2018 film, which is The Strangers Pray at Night. Yeah, I didn't watch that one. Pretty similar situation. Um, it's a family of four, husband, wife, and their son and daughter that go on a little road trip and they land at this like, oddly enough, like a mobile home park. Like, that's where you take a fucking vacation, I guess. I don't know. But the weird thing is, is that, like, it's abandoned. Like, there's nobody else there but them. And it starts into, like, the kids saying that they see people. And the parents are just like, yeah, I don't think so. But then things start happening around the home that they're staying at. You know, banging on the windows, banging on the door. And it's these three masked people... And they spend all night Which running. Would be terrifying. Yeah, they spend all night running through the trailer park trying to get away from them. You know, they're getting cut and all this stuff. And I don't quite remember how the movie ends, but um, it it still started out the same way. Someone knocking on that door, right? And then it leading into all these other terrifying, suspenseful things that that goes on. Um, yeah, the end of the movie is pretty much like daylight happens, the cops had arrived, um, they're in the hospital, 
recovering from their injuries. Right. Um, and then one of the kids wakes from a nightmare and hears a jack-in-the-box toy noise, which she had heard earlier when she encountered one of the three strangers. Terrible. And that's that was the end. Oh, my God. Yeah. I'll have so. to watch that one maybe at night. But, I mean, still, you had people getting hurt. Was super suspenseful. Right. And yeah, something like that could very well happen to you. Like, I think about when all of those creepy clowns, that trend fad, whatever you want to call it, happened. Oh, like when people were seeing just all these random clowns. All these clowns. random clowns. Yeah. yeah. That's kind of... Yeah, that's, that yeah. is so scary. And I, I don't really have like a phobia of clowns, but like, I ended up like, mm-mm. Yeah, mm-mm. no. And they weren't... Whether they thought it was funny to do that or not, it's it's not funny to do things like no. that. Trauma. Okay, so now that you kind of got the long and short of the movie, after I droned on for what probably felt like an eternity, we're going to dive into some of the cases behind the inspiration for this movie. So, obviously, like we said, Charles Manson was the first, which... If you're familiar with him, he did do, like, him and his family did do a lot of, like, home invasion type murders. Mm-hmm. Um, so for those of you that just don't have access to any type of technology, Charles Manson was a cult leader and had around 100 followers that was dubbed, quote, unquote, air quotes, all the quotes, the family. They shared a passion for an unconventional lifestyle and habitual use of hallucinogens like LSD and magic mushrooms. Together, the family lived on a deserted ranch in California. Manson had a small, hardcore group of impressionable young women that believed he was Jesus and they believed in his prophecies of a race war. Which, what a weird time. Who would hop behind some crazy-looking white dude with a beard, scraggly-looking? He looks like this is gonna sound terrible. He looks like a gutter dog that nobody wants, but it it would make an amazing story if he was ever like brought in and bathed and given love. Oh yeah, yeah. He is not. <laughs> he is not the most attractive-looking man. No, not at all. Um, so Manson was influenced by the music of the Beatles and most notably their song Helter Skelter and he interpreted the lyrics as an incitation to start a race war. Manson and three of his followers were convicted of the murders that we're going to be diving into that directly pertain to this movie. Right. So, the Tate murders occurred between August 8th and 9th of 1969 in Los Angeles, California. On August 8th, Charles Manson had ordered his follower, Charles Watson, to go to Celio Drive with several other cult members and kill everyone there as gruesomely as possible. And they did that. Watson drove to the home with Susan Atkins, Patricia Krenwinkel, and Linda Kasabian. Watson and the rest of the crew arrived at the home after midnight and they did often do a lot of these things like in the dark like they didn't just typically go out during the day. I think night makes it even it's even scarier. Yes and they first encountered Stephen Parent who was an 18 year old visiting the home's caretaker in the guest house. 
Watson shot Parent to death while Adkins and Krenwinkel broke into the main house, leaving Kasabian to stay at the gate as a lookout. Inside the home were J.C. Ring, Wojcik Furkowski, Abigail Folger, and Sharon Tate. They were made to gather in the living room. Tay and Sebring were linked together by ropes tied around their necks. Sebring was shot and stabbed to death. Frakowski and Folger managed to free themselves and flee the house, but they were chased down and killed by Krenwinkel and Watson. Lastly, Atkins and or Watson, I say that because it's not clear if one or the other did it, uh, they fatally stabbed Tate. As they left, Atkins used Tate's blood to write the word pig on the front door. The crimes created a panic in Los Angeles given their horrific nature. Sebring was shot, kicked several times in the face, breaking his nose and eye socket, then stabbed seven times and died from blood loss. Frakowski was shot twice and had been stabbed more than 50 times. Folger was stabbed at least 28 times and Tate was stabbed around 16 times. So, gruesomely is quite a word for that. Yes. Yes. And by the end of 1969, all of the killers had been arrested. The trial combined the Tate murders with another set of murders that was carried out by the Manson family and began in June of 1970. Kasabian was granted immunity and served as the main prosecution witness. Which, let's just say that's bullshit. I mean, it is what it is. So, Manson, Adkins, and Krenwinkel were found guilty in January of 1971. Watson was tried and convicted later that year. All received the death penalty, but the sentences were commuted to life in prison. Although they were eligible for parole, their requests were repeatedly denied for good reason. Yes. Manson died November 19th, 2017. Watson remains in the Richard J. Donovan Correctional Facility. Atkins died September 24th, 2009. Creedenwinkle also remains in the California Institution for Women. And the last known location of Kasabian was in Tacoma, Washington. I don't yeah. understand how she was just I think free the, to go. I mean, the only logic that I can get out of it is is it seems like she didn't play an active role in the murders. Um, she was just like the lookout, and I don't know. But even now, if you get caught in a crime of some sort, whether you're like the getaway driver, a lookout, you had no part in it, but maybe you just picked up the fool doing the crime, you still get charged with something. Yeah, I, that's what I don't understand, is she had full knowledge and, you know, of what they were going to do when they went there that night. And I just think it's garbage, but that's just me. Um, Tate, at the time when she was murdered, she was pregnant, and that was actually... One of the chilling things with her was she was just begging for them to at least let, like, you know, they could kill her, but, like, don't hurt the baby. And, um, another chilling thing that I read was about Abigail Folger. When she was killed, like, they were chasing her down and they just kept repeatedly stabbing her because, you know, she was stabbed at least 28 times. 
And she just told me, she's like, you've already got me. I'm a dead woman already. Like, you don't have to keep doing this. And I just, oh God, I'm getting goosebumps now thinking about it. That's just the mayhem that must have went on that night. I just, personally, I mean, I just don't. I don't understand. Like, you know, Mason has been outdone, as you want to say, and he really has. But I mean, how can someone have that much power over a group of people beyond me? Hitler! Well, yeah, I mean, but still, like, everybody drink the Kool-Aid. Yeah, yeah, he's another one. I mean, I don't... I, I don't understand, but if you ever, like, look at his interviews, he is crazy. Oh, yeah, I He's know actually he is. out of his... Go- I mean, he's dead now, but he was absolutely crazy. I mean... I mean, they would be like, don't you feel bad for any of the pain you cause these people? And he was like, pain? What pain? I've hurt all my life. And you're like, okay, Charles, calm down. I mean, like, watching documentaries about him and reading about him and stuff, it's like... I wouldn't follow this motherfucker anywhere. Mm-mm. Like, you a crazy old man. Mm-mm. And the fact that he pretty much just, like, kept women for himself. Yeah, that's weird, too. Like. That's weird. Yeah, I don't like it. Yeah. I don't like the, the feeling that gives me either. And another thing that should be said about Tate was going all the way back to the beginning of this podcast when we covered... Rodney Alcala, he took classes, you know, with Roman Polanski, and that was her husband. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And he was not in town when these happened, so yeah, it's a little, little bit crazy. But if you want a funny twist, not that this is funny. I don't think any of this is funny. That's all I'm saying. But if you want a funny twist on the Manson case, you need to watch Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's a fantastic movie. Um, it's Quentin Tarantino. Love that man. Um, you know, so it's going to be a long movie. You're going to have to buckle up and be willing to sacrifice a couple hours of your time. But it <laughs> it kind of goes in. It leads you to believe that basically the murders um, are going to play out the same way. But they don't, and, you know, if you haven't watched it, watch it. My favorite scene is when one of Manson's girls comes running at Brad Pitt, and he freaking chucks a can of, I don't know if it was dog food or what it was, he just chucks a can of, like, whatever at her face. It is the funniest shit I've ever seen in my life. See, you need to watch it. And another different angle, if you are interested in watching any Manson movies, is... Manson's Lost Girls. I haven't seen that. It kind of gives you the perspective of how the women were treated, how he picked them up, that kind of thing. Mm. It's pretty interesting, but totally makes you like, this dude is such a fucking creep. Like, what the fuck is wrong with you? And the main girl that you follow, like, she actually had an opportunity to get away. Mm-hmm. But she didn't. She didn't go with the guy that was trying to pick her up and ultimately landed herself in prison because she chose the wrong choice there, so. Right. 
And then, you know, if you, if you would like to breed, um, this kind of goes into some of the other people involved in the book, uh, in the, oh my God, I'm getting ready to talk about a book and I can't even explain what I'm trying to say. Um, if you would like to read anything like that, it covers another one of his girls. Her name is Leslie Van Houten. Um, because Colonel Winkle was also involved in the other set of murders that occurred, which is the LaBianca murders. They were horrific as well. Two more people died that night. Um, so this book is all about a journalist. Her name was Nikki Meredith. She began visiting um, Leslie Van Houten and Patricia Krenwinkle in prison to discover how they had changed during their incarceration. And the more she got to know them, the more she was lured into a deeper dilemma of what compels quote-unquote normal people to do unspeakable things. It's a, it's a really good book. It, it's on my bookshelf. 10 out of 10 recommend you read it if you are into that kind of stuff. So that's all we're going to talk about, Manson. That's it. You're on your own from there on. It's over, brother. That's all you get. So the second case is actually one that I've never even heard of. Or if I did, I didn't know it was called this. Uh, I can say that while doing the research for these notes, I have not heard of it. But they are the Ketty murders. And in July of 1979, Glenna Sharp, along with her five children, left their home in Connecticut after separating from her abusive husband. And Glenna wanted to relocate to Northern California. And when the family arrived in California, she started renting a small trailer at the Claremont Trailer Village in Quincy. In the following fall, she moved to house number 28 in the Royal Sierra Nevada community of Ketty. The house was much larger than the trailer and there she lived with her 15-year-old son, John, 14-year-old daughter, Sheila, 12-year-old daughter, Tina, 10-year-old son, Rick, and 5-year-old son, Greg. That is a lot to handle as a woman living by yourself. Yeah, girl. Five kids. Yeah, five kids. You got, you got, she covered the whole gambit, too. She's got puberty, hormones, (laughs) all the way down to, Mom, can you help me write my name? For real, (laughs) yes. So... This one kind of escalates fairly quickly. There's not really any build-up to it because I felt a lot of uh, the background information was just going to cloud it because this is a similar case like to Rodney Alcala. There's a lot of names floating around and it's best if we just focus on the main ones. So, around 7 a.m. on the morning of April 12th, Sheila returned home and discovered the bodies of Glenna, John, and his friend Dana Wingate in the living room. Now, Sheila had went to uh, a neighbor's home and spent the night, so that's why she was coming back and she wasn't in the home And she's the 14-year-old daughter, too. Yes, she is the 14-year-old. All three had been bound with medical tape and electrical cords. The 12-year-old girl, Tina, was not found in the home, and the three younger children, Rick, Greg, and their friend who had slept over, Justin, were unharmed in another bedroom. Sheila rushed back to the Seabolt's house where she'd stayed the night before, told them what had happened, and Jamie Seabolt, one of the 
family members had come over to get Rick, Greg, and Justin through a bedroom window. I will say this here. He said he didn't enter the home, but later he does go back and say, yes, I wanted to make sure there was nobody else alive in the home, which they think contaminated some of the evidence. This is a, for my research that I did, it seems like a very sloppy case and it was not handled very well. So, yeah. So, two bloodied knives and one hammer were found at the scene, and one of the knives had been bent at roughly 30 degrees, so there was some force used. I mean, it takes, you know. The faces we're making. (laughs) Blood splatter evidence from inside the home indicated that the murders of Glenna, John, and Dana had all taken place in the living room, so they pretty much stayed in one area. Mm Mm-hmm. Glenna was discovered lying on her side near the sofa, nude from the waist down, and gagged with a blue bandana and her own panties, all of which had been secured with tape. Mm -mm. She had been stabbed in the chest, her throat was stabbed horizontally, and on the side of her head was an imprint matching the butt of a Daisy 880 Powerline BBB. BBB? BBB? <laughs> I think I just had a stroke. <laughs> oh my god. A <laughs> Anyways, it was a freaking daisy pellet rifle, okay? Anyways. John's throat was slashed. Dana had multiple head injuries and had been manually strangled to death. John and Dana suffered blunt force trauma to their heads caused by a hammer. And autopsies determined that Glenna and John died from the knife wounds and blunt force trauma, while Dana died by asphyxiation. There's a hard word. I struggle with it all the time. (laughs) So, whatever this is, sloppy or not, it definitely sounds like these people just busted in, Mm -hmm. killed whoever they seen in sight, because clearly the other kids weren't touched in the other rooms, Mm -hmm. and then pieced the fuck out. Right. Um, which is kind of similar to, you know, it is similar to The Strangers, because at the end of the movie, the masked lunatics climb into an old Ford truck, they're driving down the road, and they actually see these two little boys with their pamphlets, they ask for one, and they keep driving, and then the little boys keep going up the road, they see the doors open, they see the murder scene, so it's not, you know, it's a lot like the movie. I don't know what I'm trying to say. Mm Um... So, Justin, the friend of Greg and Rick that had slept over, he said that he dreamed of details of the murder, but then later claims to have actually witnessed them. He said that he heard, you know, sounds in the night, and he got up, and this is what he saw. He saw Glenna with two men. One had a mustache and short hair. The other clean-shaven with long hair. They both wore glasses. And according to Justin, John and Dana entered the home and began arguing with these two men. A fight started, and that's when Tina entered the room, but she was taken out of the home's back door by one of the men. Based on Justin's descriptions, the sketches of the two unknown men were produced, and I want to add this too. I didn't include this in my notes. I don't know why, but they used a total amateur for this sketch. He was not good at art. It was not in his skill set. He... And even they said... they. And even they, say, hmm. they even say they don't know why 
they didn't hire somebody qualified for the job or why they didn't use somebody. But nonetheless, this total amateur whose stick figures have scoliosis did this, you know, sketch for a major case. Okay. And he produces these sketches and the men were described as being in their late 20s to early 30s. One was between 5 foot 11 and 6 foot 2 with dark blonde hair and the other between 5 foot 6 and 5 foot 10 with black greasy hair. Both wore goat and both of them wore gold framed sunglasses. <clears throat> that could be anybody. I mean, that's the yeah. first one's quite. I mean, I know it's just a few inches, but like five foot eleven, six foot ten, six foot two. That's that's just like, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Like I said, <laughs> what I found, this case was just a shit show. We'll keep it as that, a shit show case. <laughs> a family acquaintance told detectives that Dana had recently stolen an unknown quantity of LSD from local drug dealers, but they were unable to provide proof of this claim and rumors regarding the crimes being motivated by drug trafficking were dismissed. About 4,000 man hours were spent working the case, and in December of 1983, detectives ruled out serial killers Henry Lee Lucas and Otis Toole as potential suspects. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's great for them. Yeah. But on April 22nd of 1984, three years after the murders and Tina's disappearance, a bottle collector discovered a cranium portion of a human skull and part of a mandible near Feather Falls in the neighboring county, which was roughly 100 miles from Ketty. The remains were confirmed by a forensic pathologist to those of Tina Sharp in June of 1984. Near the remains, detectives also discovered a blue nylon jacket, a blanket, a pair of Levi Strauss jeans with a missing back pocket, and an empty surgical tape dispenser. And here's the tough part. The case remains unsolved. The house where the murders occurred was demolished in 2004. The last known development on the case was in April 2018, three years ago, in which DNA evidence recovered from a piece of tape at the crime scene matched that of a known living suspect. So who, who killed the Sharp family? Authorities continue asking that question, hoping to revive the investigation. So if you have any information <laughs> on the Katie Cat murders. I'm not sure who you need to call, but you should call somebody. No, and I mean that's the thing. Like it it's so sloppy because, you know, before they found the remains, they got an anonymous call um saying that they found remains that or no they had a call they they got a call that tina's body was here or her remains were here that phone call was never like logged on this case and they said it was like 2013 roughly and they found this recording in the bottom of an evidence box. Yeah. Well, obviously, as sloppy as it sounds, 
<clears throat> whoever did this did a pretty good job of getting away with it. Oh, yeah. No, I'm not saying the murder was sloppy. Which, I mean, the, from the way it sounds, it's pretty sloppy. Um, but the investigation and the way it was handled. And I understand that you put 4,000 man hours into this case, but that's sloppy. That's real sloppy, son. <clears throat> I definitely think that this particular case probably worked more of the suspense side of the strangers movie mm -hmm. along with the fact that like the strangers don't ever get caught they do their deed for a single night and right. then they leave so right that's why that's why i feel like that was this particular case was brought in as inspiration for the movie because it's you know somebody they probably don't even know could or couldn't be. Don't know. Cause we don't really get it. Um, but somebody just busted in, did what they had, did what they, you know, not that what they had to do, but did what they wanted to do, and then peaced out. I just why take Tina? You know. I don't know, but I mean, if Chuck, I don't know about the sketches. I don't know about him dreaming or anything about that. But you know, if he said that one of the men took her out of the the back door of the house that would make sense but I don't know you know that he would be able to physically handle all of that because it never said that John or that Glenna rather was deceased prior to John and Dana entering the home but I mean even still John was 14 and there's some big or no, John was 15. Yeah, I'm John sorry. was 15. I mean, 15-year-old kid um, and his friend, that's two on one there. And then if Glenna was alive, when he took Tina, when one of them took Tina out, that's three on one. It'd be two. There's two intruders, right? Yeah, but one took Tina out of the house. Oh, this is true. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I'm saying. It doesn't... You know, to me, it doesn't make sense for there to even only be two. You know, it would be a real sick twist on this case. What? Is if it was Glenna's abusive ex-husband and one of his friends. Could. Yeah. And they just hunted her down. But Connecticut I don't know. California, that's a long way. I mean, they found Tina a hundred miles crazy. away, you know? People are crazy. Yeah, it could be, um, I don't know, you know, hopefully, you know, because you've got Sheila and the two younger kids that are left alive. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to say. Who knows? But, based off of these two cases, I, I can see where both of them were pulled for inspiration, and I personal opinion <laughs> don't come after me is I don't the whole Manson and just them breaking into the houses in the night I think that's the only connection for this movie I think there's more along with the Ketty murders for the strangers than Manson alright yeah Manson that's just <clears throat> base you know they broke in the home it's a home invasion type murder right um 
for the, you know, I, I definitely see where you get that the Caddy Cabin murders were more identical to the movie. But that's why the movie was inspired by and wasn't a recount of actual events. So, and you know, the third one that he drew inspiration was from his own personal life. So that's not something that we can really report to you guys on. Um, you have to take him at face value for that. If he says he experienced that, which I don't doubt it. I don't doubt it. Um, it's not uncommon for someone to break into houses, you know? How polite of you to knock on my door to see if I'm home or not before you've robbed me of all my goods. Right. Thank you. So, that's it, guys. That is The Strangers wrapped up for you guys with a bloody little bow. Um, we hope you enjoyed that. And Kayla and I did have the opportunity to go on a ghost hunt with Ooh. David Scott Worley over in Scarborough. He gave us a quick 20-minute tour of Dr. Samuel Price's mansion. He was a uh, surgeon that lived in the area and basically handled all the, you know, operations and procedures there for people that lived in the town. It's very cool. The house is absolutely gorgeous. It is. Um, we are going to be bringing you guys some bonus content, but first let me give you Lemony Snicket series of unfortunate events. So, <laughs> God. First things first, we download, we downloaded like an EMF reader to our phones and uh, I did not know that while I was recording, the beeping from the EMF reader was going to be picked up on the recording. So I recorded for almost an hour and a half and all you hear is beep, beep, beep. So that broke my heart into a thousand pieces. Well, then we took a break and I smartened up and I turned the beeping off and there's a pretty cool moment that I don't want to spill too much on the tail end of this episode, but needless to say, that audio just magically vanished. We do have snippets of it um, from some of the stuff that Kayla was able to snag, and um, Scott had some stuff that he sent in to us, and unfortunately, my partner in crime is going to be out the rest of the week doing some work-related business, so... She's also the editor, if you guys didn't know. So blame everything on her. Hey. Um, <laughs> we Since we've been having a lot of issues with audio and trying to get everything lined out, like I even emailed these to her and the spooky recordings didn't even go through email. No, they disappeared. <laughs> so I know that we told you guys we were going to be bringing you that bonus content on Wednesday the 13th, but I think what we're going to have to do is push that back a week from then to Wednesday the 20th so that way we can put in the extra work and hocus pocus on the computer and we will be bringing you another episode make sure you check the Facebook page yes please vote we have the lighthouse Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Amityville Horror for you to vote on so vote we expect to see more than two Mother freaking votes on this poll. So do your thing. As always, don't die.
Thanks for listening to Two Jane Does. I'm Emily. And I'm Kayla. Remember to tune in every Monday now at 8 p.m. as we dive into a new case. Please follow us on Spotify, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, and leave us a good review. Catch us on Facebook at Two Jane Does, where you can find updates on our episodes and links to our other social media accounts. If you have any cases that you want us to cover and go into detail with, you can leave us a message there.